Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. If a visitor from 1600, let's say Shakespeare, were to travel to your house, there'd be a lot of things that might surprise him. TV, the internet, the dishwasher. But what might be most surprising and most magical is that even if you're not the richest person in your area, you've probably got a lot of stuff. And that stuff seems so perfectly formed. And mostly, it works quite well. The reason that you've got all that stuff can basically be summed up in one word, factories. In the course of human history, factories are pretty new, but they've changed our lives in ways we tend to forget about. One thing they've done is allowed regular people to afford all sorts of fancy stuff, like microwaves and cars. They've also reshaped America, and increasingly, our politics, and our sense of who we are. Now, a world without them seems almost unimaginable. I take a life-saving drug that's made in the factory. If that factory did not produce that drug, I would literally not be here. Joshua Freeman is the author of Behemoth, a history of the factory and the making of the modern world. And, you know, I have to say it made me very alert to the dangers of chaos, you know, because from, you know, literally hundreds of millions of people, it's that immediate a connection. Freeman is a distinguished professor of history at Queens College in New York, and he says factories revolutionized America. And then fairly quickly, many of them left us. Now, political candidates promise to bring them back, though it's not clear whether that promise can be kept. In 1960, 24% of all workers worked in manufacturing. Today, 8%. And I think people would be shocked to think that that change would happen. If the average person on the street in 1960 could not have foreseen the decline of the American factory, lots of average people on the street in 2018 remember, or at least imagine, the America of 1960. You know, I think you could argue that this kind of golden age of America that people are often very nostalgic for, you know, from the, let's say, the end of World War II up through the late 1970s, you know, in part rested on the combination of the large factory and unionization. And I think, you know, a lot of the rhetoric, particularly coming from uh, President Trump, harks back to that. You know, when he says, make America great again, that's part of the image in people's minds. Increasing tariffs on foreign goods, which President Trump has actually advocated for decades, is part of an effort to deliver on a promise, a promise to reopen some of those closed plants that dot our country. In the past, I've heard technology pioneers say that we're glamorizing factory jobs now that they're gone. They were too hard on people's bodies. They were repetitive. Many factory workers dreamed that their kids would get better jobs, which is all to say that factories are a lightning rod. And Joshua Freeman acknowledges it's been like that for 300 years. The system emerges and emerges quite quickly around 300 years ago. It sort of pops into existence. And there are just enormous efficiencies associated with the factory, with the coordination of production, the scale of production, and the application of external, non-human power to production. And you put those things together, and very rapidly you have this new model of how to make stuff. The first real factory, he says, was a silk factory, started in 1721 in England. And as factories spread, tourists started showing up, like Robinson Crusoe author Daniel Defoe. 
and Charles Dickens and the great romantic poet William Blake. But Blake was not super impressed. He called factories dark satanic mills, partially because they polluted the environment. But there were other problems, too. Who were the workers in these early factories? The silk mills, the textile mills, many of them were children. And, and, and I'm not talking about, you know, 17-year-olds. I'm talking about 5-year-olds and 8-year-olds. And their parents thought it was okay to send 5-year-olds to go work in factories? Well, sometimes it didn't have anything to do with their parents. They, they were, came from workhouses. They were abandoned kids. They were orphans. And the local governments that ran these workhouses contracted with these factories for these children to be, they were called apprentices, but they weren't being taught anything. They were just cheap labor. Um, in other cases, parents were desperate. And, and a lot of defenders of the factory said, yeah, child labor is really bad, mm-hmm. but child starvation is even worse. When factories made the leap to America, there were improvements in standardization and in scale. Factories changed the young country. Lots of teenage and 20-something women streamed out of farm country and went into cities for what they thought was an amazing new opportunity. And sometimes factory owners were really committed to the education and enrichment of their workers. Other times, though, as the author Herman Melville discovered, factories were dystopian places for these women. He goes visits this papermaking plant, which, by the way, is still there. I've been there. It's in Dalton, Massachusetts. Really? It's still, it's still oh, there? Yeah, it's still, okay. Still okay. producing That's paper, amazingly enough. And he sees them as, you know, kind of ghostly, you know, wane figures. And, right. you know, he talks about how they're the extension of the machine. The machine right. controls them, right. not they controlling the machine. And he sees it again similar to Blake, as, as, as almost devilish, satanic, you know, a kind of underworld. Pretty soon, factories were not the destination of choice for young American women. And by the mid-1800s, the massive buildings that powered America's economy turned to another source of cheap labor, immigrants, particularly Irish immigrants. Joshua Freeman says the country built by our founding fathers, this rural, agrarian place, it had been supplanted by a new vision. You know, the great example I use in the book is the 1876 Centennial Exhibition. This was like a kind of huge World's Fair right, type right. deal in Philadelphia mm-hmm. to celebrate 100 years in the United States, you know. And what's the centerpiece of it? A giant steam engine. You know, it's huh. not the yeah. documents or it's not, you know, George Washington's, you know, wooden teeth. It's it's a steam engine, <laughs> right? It's a redefinition. And, you know, President Grant comes and he flips the switch and the steam engine starts and powers all this, you know, factory equipment that's there. So the country comes to embrace this as the basis of its national greatness. But Mm -hmm. that's not right away. That's a debate. How quickly did cities like Pittsburgh or uh, Lowell, Massachusetts, or later on Detroit, how quickly did they start to think about their environment and the things, like in order to make things in factories, very often you have byproducts, waste products, things you then need to get rid of. How quickly did they realize, like, "Mm, maybe our water supply isn't as great as it used to be, or maybe our air quality isn't so great? How quickly did that happen? Uh, Usually not quickly at all. And in fact, smoke was often seen as a sign of prosperity. Mm -hmm. um, If there's smoke coming out, we're doing well. In the case of Pittsburgh, it's not until the 1940s, you know, a century later that you 
begin to deal with that issue. I mean, there were the rare voices. Ralph Waldo Emerson was critical of Lowell, Massachusetts because they actually bought up land to get more water into the river that powered those mills. And, you know, he thought this was kind of this arrogant imposition on on nature. But he was a rare voice. Mm. There was a kind of sense that there was infinite resources and, you know, uh, and there's a kind of Promethean impulse behind this, you know. We are the masters of all of this. And, you know, the idea of, like, messing up the environment was really not uh, something that people pay attention to Mm -hmm. until extremely recently. And, uh, of course, we're living with the consequences. Mm -hmm. Another environmental question, but but a very different kind. The 1800s, you know, we're talking about late 1700s, 1800s is this Mm. time of huge factories, huge proliferation of factories. They're changing the world. It was also a time of major colonial powers. And I wonder how much, you know, on the way into factories, right, you need raw ingredients. And I wonder how much factories drove, let's say, foreign policy because, like, there's a need to get the raw ingredients. Absolutely. Uh, I think you're on to something extraordinarily important, particularly in the case of England and Europe more than the case of the U.S. Hmm. You know, you can't grow cotton in Europe. It's just not suited, the temperature and the environment. So to create a textile industry, you had to create sources of of raw materials. And that often required using diplomatic, economic, and even military force Hmm. to impose plantation regimes to grow this cotton. Look, this was one of the great reasons for the spread of American slavery, Mm -hmm. which was to grow more cotton for primarily English textile mills, you know, which 90% of their cotton was coming from the Americas by, you know, the 1820s, 1830s. So there's a huge amount of global transformation and, frankly, global misery that's created in the process of supplying these factories with raw materials. Even today, you think of China, you know, which is going all over the world looking for rare earth uh, metals. Right, right. Which are so important for, you know, the creation of electronic components. You know, uh, they're investing in mining in Africa all over the place. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it's not traditional colonialism, but it has a lot of echoes of that system. Right, right, right. But why are they doing that raw ingredients? Like if you need to make cell phones, you're going to need different metals to do that. That's right. Right. You Talk about a major figure of uh, the 20th century, probably the major figure that if anybody had to think about the factory in America, this is the guy they'd think of, Henry Ford. Obviously, he didn't invent factories. They'd been going strong for quite a while before he came on the scene. How did Henry Ford and how he kind of, in some sense, remade the Midwest, how did that change America? How did that change the factory? What did he do differently? Well, Ford's great innovation, you know, we describe in shorthand as the assembly line. And, mm-hmm. you know, the idea here is that instead of having workers working individually and then sort of moving products from one workstation to another, you know, the workers stand still and the materials go past the workers who do very limited operations on it as it's in front of them and it goes on to the next person and you build a product that way. And this required extreme standardization of parts so that, you know, a crankshaft would fit into any engine block. And and we take this for granted, but this was an extraordinarily difficult challenge. So this a highly concentrated, highly integrated, enormously efficient system. And he's a, a proselytizer of it. You know, mm-hmm. today you can't get into most factories. You know, people don't want you to. Ford 
welcome journalists. He welcomed his rivals. He welcomed, you know, yeah, really? he was very proud of it. Yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, of course, the system spread to other automakers and then to other lines of industry and, and overseas. So Ford became a kind of worldwide hero for this extreme efficiency that he introduced with the Model T. It's interesting, too, that you talk about this kind of new level of standardization because one of the things Ford also wanted was a kind of standardization of the workforce, too, to make sure, like, these people were truly American. Um, in some way, he had, he tried to assess that about his workers. What, what did he do and what did American mean to him? Well, this grew out of a practical problem. You know, they introduced the assembly line and workers hate it. Hmm. You know, you're standing all day twisting a few nuts or putting a tire onto right, a hub. Right. And they just start quitting in huge numbers. Huh. So they have to hire four times the number of workers they need in the factory in the first year of the assembly line. In other words, wow. they have 400%. Yeah. So, you know, what do you do? So Ford comes up with, uh, not just Ford, but Ford and, and the group around him, uh, with the idea of both greatly increasing wages, but also making the increase in wages dependent upon workers adopting what Ford thought of as the habits of life necessary to be a good factory worker. You know, you couldn't drink. You had to be thrifty. You couldn't live in <laughs> sin. You know, if you were Russian, you couldn't take the orthodox Christmas off because the factory was working, you know. And, and he actually created what he called a sociological department who went into people's homes to investigate if they met the criteria. So, uh, the pay system was you got a basic uh, salary. That was kind of standard wages for Detroit. And then basically a, a double that only if you met these criteria. So Ford was a, a believer that there was the need for a new man for this new factory system. So it's not just the assembly line, but this notion of a new social system to accompany it huh. that, that Ford introduced and was highly influential and picked up by a lot of people who in many other ways were very different than Ford, you know, including later on the Soviet Union. Hmm. Um, so I've got to ask you about uh, the rise of unions and like the role that they played in changing these factories and in changing workers' lives. First of all, I wonder how unions got a foothold and, and how tricky it was to take on, like, big factory bosses. And then I know there have been uh, famous media images of uh, workers just stopping their machines to show that they have solidarity with unions. And there's a famous image in the movie Norma Ray, which is about uh, the unionization of a textile mill. And people just stop their machines in the middle of the workday. Did people actually do that kind of dramatic stuff um, right in front of management? Right. Well, when factories started, there were lots of efforts. Unions already existed for other kinds of workers to, to unionize them. But when you begin to get these Ford-type factories, these really giant factories, they are very successful in defeating unionizing efforts okay. until the 1930s. And then with the New Deal and the Depression – uh, you get a wave of successful organizing efforts. And this really takes this system, which had been very oppressive to workers, and once they begin to share the fruits of its productivity, you know, it kind of lays the basis for the great post-World War II prosperity. And the, the key breakthrough happened at General Motors when workers not only stopped the machinery but refused to leave the factory. They had what was called a sit-down strike. They stayed and occupied the factories for almost a month which gave them enormous bargaining power. So, you know, the ability to pull a switch and shut down a whole factory 
you know, gave enormous power to workers. When I think about factories now, when a lot of people think about factories now, they think about companies like Foxconn Mm -hmm. that produce things like iPhones in China, these huge, huge factories. I remember uh, Foxconn putting in nets uh, in their dormitories so people would not commit suicide. They would not jump out the window. They would be caught by a net. Um, I remember a few years ago, one of the leaders of Foxconn said, we're going to try to bring in as many robots as we possibly can so we can take out as many people as we possibly can. What is the state of the factory now? And like, where does it go from here? Well, the largest factories in human history exist right now. And okay. in fact, they're making things like your sneakers and your cell phone. Okay. And some of these factories have, you know, 200 300,000 workers in a single factory complex. They're absolutely mind-boggling. In, is this like in a single building or it's a compound of buildings or what? It's a compound. Okay, so, for example, okay. the place I think you were referring to, which was called Foxconn City, yeah. uh, which is in Shenzhen, China, it was, you know, it took about an hour to walk across you know, the, the, the wow, property. It had many different gosh. buildings in it. But it was one factory complex. It had okay. dormitories. It had recreation facilities as well as production facilities. Mm-hmm. And there are factories that large which continue to be built. Uh, wow. Foxconn did introduce some robots, you know, in some factories. But it built factories that were even larger than that Foxconn city in the intervening years. So, you know, we globally are still at an all-time height of manufacturing. You know, globally, close to 30% of all workers work in manufacturing, and that's mostly factory work. Now, is that a peak, and are we going to start turning down? Possibly. A lot of people think that, and they think automation will lead to that. But we are not in a post-industrial world. Hmm. You know, we may be in a post-factory America, but we are not in a post-factory world. Joshua Freeman is the author of Behemoth, A History of the Factory and the Making of the Modern World. He's also a distinguished professor of history at Queens College. Joshua, thank you so much. This is great. My pleasure. If you're wondering what Henry Ford's factory actually looked like, we've got a link to a photo essay that'll take you inside the first Ford factory. That is at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash innovationhubradio. Radio.